Our reading this morning is a passage from One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, a novel by Alexander Solzhenitsyn about life in a northern Siberian labor camp in the time of Stalin's Russia. Life in the camp is meant to strip inmates of dignity. They're half-starved. They wear thin mittens as they work with stone and mortar in below zero. Whether the main character, Sukhov, was arrested as a spy, but he's innocent. On this day, he's sick, but he's forced to work anyway. This passage describes his brief lunch break. Shukov sat himself on the edge of a wooden form. He sat on worse things. He leaned back against the wall, his jacket tightening about his body, and felt a lump in his clothing, the hunk of bread he'd brought along for lunch. He always brought along the same amount and never touched it before lunchtime. The ache in his back had traveled down to his legs now. They were weak and trembling. If he could only get near the stove. He opened his coat, untied the face cloth from around his neck, breaking the ice off it to fold it and put it in his pocket. Then he eased the bread out of his pocket and laid it in a clean rag, guarding it behind the flap of his overcoat so not a crumb would fall and began to chew. He'd had the bread next to his body under two layers of clothing so it hadn't frozen. He used to think about how they'd eaten at home in the village big bowls of potatoes and platefuls of groats and way back great big chunks of meat and they'd guzzled milk till their guts burst but now in the camps he knew they'd gone about it the wrong way then. You wolf your food down and it's no food at all. It doesn't fill you. It's thrown away. You had to eat concentrating on the food as he did now, nibbling off the corners and turning them on his tongue and rolling them around in his mouth. That was the way to get the taste out of food, even this soggy black bread. For eight years now, what had he been eating? Not a damn thing, but look at the work he'd been able to do on that nothing. It came of knowing how to eat. Thank you, Dean and Ruth. It's a hard song they just gave us by Emmylou Harris. We are aging soldiers in an ancient war seeking out some half-remembered shore We drink our fill, and still we thirst for more, asking if there's no heaven. What's this hunger for? There's pain in every verse of this song, and something so close to despair. But then this burst of alleluia, alleluia, we cry, alleluia, a song, a word of pure praise. It's a hard song all the way to the last line. Like 
falling stars from the universe, we are hurled down through the long loneliness of the world until we behold the pain become the pearl. Not find the pearl, but become the pearl, a thing so rare and precious and beautiful. As if out of the pain or through the pain, we find our way to joy, release, alleluia. It's intriguing. There's something nourishing there in those words, something to roll around in the heart, in the mouth, like the prisoner Sukhov does with his morsel of black bread. Words can be like food. Words, stories can be like food. I was asked this week to sum up my theology, and I offered, almost to my surprise, uh, a line um, I memorized some years back and for some reason have been carrying in my mind this week. A line attributed to Ramakrishna, the 19th century Indian mystic. It goes, The winds of grace are always blowing, but we must raise our sails. The winds of grace are always blowing, but we must raise our sails. That's pretty much says it for me. That's what I've bet my life on. Those winds of grace, the larger life always available, even when we can't see it, don't believe it, feel like cursing the whole mess. The larger life whose name is love, which we don't control and won't ever master, but which is always moving around us and through us and can take us forward if we will. And so our task is to use whatever means we can to haul up our sails and catch those winds. And all the practices we employ, this worship, all manner of prayer and meditation, healthy habits, fine arts, friendship, parenting, running and yoga and working the soil or working period at our calling, whatever it is, all the practices we employ, reaching out to others, telling our story in small groups, walking the winding road of the labyrinth or the long road of healing from illness, all these are ways of raising those sails in hopes of catching those winds. And that's it. That's how we become graces people, loves people, guided by those winds. That's my belief so far. The winds of grace are always blowing. Words can be like food for the spirit. Of all the spiritual practices I've employed or have employed me, is how it feels sometimes, (laughs) over the years, (laughs) yoga, journaling, swimming, walking, sitting in silence, sometimes in bygone days with Quakers, Um, there is one that's been especially important to me as a way of meditating, and it goes like this. You memorize prayers or poems that speak to your soul. Commit them to memory. And then in your meditation time, eyes closed, instead of focusing on the in-breath and the out-breath, you focus on the memorized words. So you repeat your Mary Oliver poem or your Rilke passage silently and so slowly 
letting each word fall, as my teacher said, like a pearl dropped into a goblet of oil, dropped into the heart, in fact, until the words sink down into the deepest part of the heart and settle there where they are stored inside the jacket so even in freezing weather you can break the ice and reach in and take them out and savor them. Like the prisoner Sukov savoring that black bread, what an image, chewing in a mindful way, tasting, feeling, smelling, until every bit of nourishment has been absorbed into his body and his spirit. He says, you had to eat, concentrating on the food, nibbling off the corners, turning them on your tongue, rolling them around in the mouth. That was the way to get taste out of food, even the soggy black bread. For eight years now, more, what had he been eating? Not a damn thing, but look at the work he'd been able to do on that nothing. It came of knowing how to eat. Novelist Solzhenitsyn lived several years in such a camp where the the goal was to break you, and he made it through. He learned that eating your rations gratefully, mindfully, prayerfully made a difference. He saw that those who wolfed their food and licked the bowl and stole from others didn't do as well. The hero of the novel lives through a day where, in spite of the hell he's in, there are several small, what, moments of grace, so that by nightfall, when he's lying on his hard, cold cot, he's actually offering prayers of thanks. I wonder if you've wondered at all about this morning's advertised sermon title, Eating Well. Here's what that's about. Today's worship service is part of a series all through January, as I said. We're taking a few of the more popular New Year's resolutions. I resolve to eat better, to get out of debt, to exercise more, to be a better parent, to be a better partner, and we're reframing them to get at something different, maybe deeper. In January, worship services, we're offering some exercises for your spiritual toolkit, a little silence each Sunday, and other things, including something Ruth McKenzie will offer us after church starting next Sunday, something called Lectio Divina, where you'll take small bites of poems and sacred readings and savor them and go where they take you. Eating well is today's title, but let me qualify this. I feel confident that you don't need me to tell you in a sermon to eat kale and get your micronutrients. (laughs) Ask Tracy Yu or other gifted ones in this congregation who make cooking and gardening and nutrition an art. They are much more equipped to advise you on eating well. I know a few things, the same things you know to eat veggies and whole grains, to avoid sugar, to sit down at the table when you eat and give full attention to your food and do one thing at a time. And last Sunday evening, as I stood at the kitchen counter eating the last iced ginger cookie while watching PBS's Downton Abbey on the flat screen (laughs) way across the room, I was giving this some serious thought. (laughs) 
And I remember that story about Mahatma Gandhi. A woman brings her little son to Gandhi and says, my boy eats too much sugar, please tell him to stop. And Gandhi says, come back again in two weeks. So the mother and the son trek back home, a long journey, and two weeks later they return, and Gandhi says to the child, son, stop eating sugar, it's not healthy. And the confused mother says to Gandhi, why didn't you say this two weeks ago? And Gandhi replies, two weeks ago I was still eating sugar. Thank goodness you're not depending on me to advise you on diet. That's not my job here. Till June 15th, I'm still your associate minister. And my job and my joy is to do something else. My job is to try to make these, these small leaps from body to spirit and back, from sugar to the sweetness to the swiftness and sacredness of our time here on earth in this life. What I have learned in my life about eating well is that it is a lifelong, intimate, complex journey, this relationship with food and what it can teach us about ourselves and the world. Food is more than food. Eating is more than consuming. We are taking in the world. We're taking in what was alive into ourselves to make life mind-blowing, holy, Last Sunday morning, Krista Tippett's On Being on NPR aired an event called the Summit on Happiness. Probably some of you heard it. With a panel of religious leaders from several major world religions, including the Dalai Lama, and Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of the United Kingdom, Krista asked them all about the role of the body in spiritual practice. And the rabbi said, in Judaism, we have an embodied spiritual practice. It's called food. In fact, he said, if you want a crash course in understanding all the Jewish festivals, they can be summed up in three sentences. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. He said the Jewish view of bodily pleasure holds to a third way, not the worship of pleasure, that's hedonism, not the denial of pleasure, but what he called the sanctification of pleasure, the blessing of pleasure. Surely that's what eating well means. It was the way of the hero in Solzhenitsyn's novel, Ivan Denisovich Sukov. He sanctified the eating of a piece of soggy black bread. We could say he was raising his sails for those winds of grace. Through the hell of pain, he was crying, Alleluia. I think the way to eat well is the way to do anything well. As we move into these last months together, I want you to know that the truest Spiritual practice for me in these past 15 years has been simply this ministry. Serving you so imperfectly but so gladly during these years and witnessing up close how the pain becomes the pearl in you, precious ones. These years have been full of alleluia. You have floated down into the depths of my heart and settled there 
I have tucked you inside my jacket, and there you live. A little over a year ago, I was asked to look over my years in ministry and choose what I would call a holy moment, a sanctified moment, a holy moment, and share it with a room full of colleagues. One holy moment from my ministry. Right. I had a couple weeks to think about this, and that was good. Because my first thoughts were a little flip. (laughs) How would I know what a holy moment is? Holy from whose perspective? God's or mine? Did Jesus on the cross think he was having a holy moment? (laughs) What I realized finally is that for me the request was an invitation to recognize how Peter Mayer's song has become truly true. Everything is holy now. So I took the assignment as an invitation to practice a way of seeing, a way of walking around in a watchful, expectant way. And I remembered photographer Jim Brandenburg, Minnesota man, who gave himself a challenge. You know, he had traveled for years for National Geographic till he'd grown disenchanted. And he said, in the midst of success, I found myself wed to a drudge named technology He said, living in a world lit by computer screens instead of the sun. For a National Geographic feature, he might take 20,000 photos shooting all day, every day, and then sit at the computer for weeks comparing and culling, a draining routine. To save his relationship to his art, Jim went back to his native land, wolf country, and submitted to a discipline. For 90, 90 consecutive days, he allowed himself only one photo a day, one click, no second exposure, no second chance, no tampering later beyond a little cropping. From autumn equinox to winter solstice, he walked through the north woods like a cat watching a mouse hole, witnessing all manner of beauty and asking, will this be my shot for the day, this Blue sky reflected in the open eye of a deer just killed by a poacher. Shall I spend my one last chance here, or shall I keep going with so little sunlight left? For Jim, it was a private discipline, but later, at the urging of colleagues, it became a book of 90 photos called Chased by the Light. The exhibit is at the Bell Museum as I speak. Chased by the Light, my favorite of Jim's photos is one he took just after he caught a loon from his canoe and untangled the fishing line that had the bird trapped by its neck and bill, and the photo shows that loon doing a dance of freedom just before it lifts off the lake into sunrise. Ministry has moments like this. When Brandenburg came to mind, I thought, here's an exercise for a minister. Go through the day on the alert, witnessing dozens of holy moments, and out of all the holy moments, choose one, no less and no more, and make a note of it on paper or out loud. I tried this, and I've been doing it most days ever since. Here's the one I shared with my fellow ministers in the big room that day. It's 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. 
I set two alarms because I still have to write a good half of a challenging memorial service. I'm walking barefoot downstairs to the computer in the quiet, aware that all the folks in the congregation are still asleep, with the exception of the two who are composing 4 a.m. emails. As I turn on the light and sit down at the laptop, I have that familiar combination of feelings. There's loneliness in the task, together with a kind of gracious solitude. There's that free-fall feeling in my stomach, together with an almost belligerent, if white-knuckle, trust. There's my prayer that the one who's died, who's on the other side now, will sit beside me in these hours and be my guide. The question of whether I should spend my life this way or engage in this kind of an act at four in the morning is long gone. This is a given. So I take a few breaths and I remember a poem I memorized, one of my favorites by Dylan Thomas. The poem goes like this. In my craft or sullen art, exercised in the still night, when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms, I labor by singing light, not for ambition or bread or the strut and trade of charms on the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud one apart from the raging moon I write on these spindrift pages, nor for the towering dead with their nightingales and psalms, but for the lovers, their arms round the griefs of the ages, who pay no praise nor wages, nor heed my craft or art. Another deep breath, and then I begin my morning's work. This human life is not a walk across the park, and so much about it is a big, daunting mystery. But look what we're about here. Sincerely, look how we gather, how we try, how we hope, how we care and act, how we struggle and wrestle, how we gaze and marvel, how we listen and encourage, how we nourish each other, how we give, receive, and grow. How we sing no matter what, because we believe even beyond reason. We believe in that cry of praise. Alleluia. Our congregation's president, Kathy Cosgren, often offers a table grace, one she memorized, and I'm working on it too. Let's close by listening to her little prayer. Spirit of life and love, give us a heart for simple things, love and laughter, bread and wine, tales and dreams. Fill our lives with green and growing hope. Make us a people of justice whose song is Alleluia and whose name breathes Love. May it be so for us. Amen.